Towering above the grounds of the University of Melbourne is the Redmond Barry Building, 13 storeys of orange brick, square windows and cavernous stairways. This building is named after the university's first chancellor, but Redmond Barry was better known for a single act, sentencing Australia's most notorious bushranger, Ned Kelly, to death. Barry handed down the sentence with the customary, may God have mercy on your soul. In reply, the bushranger suggested the judge was close to death himself. Five days after Kelly was hanged for murder at the Melbourne jail, Redmond Barry caught a cold and died the following week. The University of Melbourne is home to 12 museums filled with thousands of objects. Each object has its own story, but who gets to decide what stories are told? I'm Angus Thompson, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each episode, we take one object from the university's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. This week, six small photographs, which helped create the legend of Ned Kelly and got reporter Rebecca Pridham thinking about the stories we hear and those we don't. the scene. It's the 29th of June 1880. We're a couple hours out of Melbourne in Glen Rowan, a small country town. There's dust in the air, the main street is bustling, as people pour in on trains trying to get a glimpse of the commotion. It's a pretty big day for this small humdrum place. Ned Kelly, the infamous Aussie bushranger, has just been captured by police. After a long and bloody siege, We're talking hostages, armed gunmen, buildings set on fire. As you can imagine, there's a bit of a media frenzy taking place. Reporters and photographers tripping over each other. One of them is photographer John William Lint. He rushes from Melbourne as soon as he catches wind of the siege. He takes six photos, capturing people at the centre of the event. I'm looking at them now, and I've got to say, they're something. The dust has died down, the fires have burnt out, the Glenrowan Inn is in ruins. It's probably still smouldering on the day that he's taken these photographs. These are like consolation pictures. I see them as aftermath pictures. That's Ken Orchard, an expert on the photographer Lim. These aftermath pictures, the first time I saw them, I found them really jarring. I actually still do. The people in them have been through a living nightmare. Many have been held hostage by a gang of outlaws in a burning building, or they've watched their mates in the police force go down in a shootout. They've literally watched people die, and here they are, lined up, stiff and awkward, posing like they're in a school photo. These photos are meant to capture the last stand of Ned Kelly, Australia's most notorious bushranger, and all the rubble and ruin he left behind. Yet all but one are staged by the photographer. Basically, Ken Orchard says, Lint arrived too late for the action. The nitty-gritty of the siege is that, that basically it takes place at about 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Kelly and has a shootout with the police at about uh, 5 o'clock in the morning before light. And then there's a, a standoff that lasts for about six or seven hours. They're not sh- the police aren't sure what's going on inside the inn. And the inn is set fire to at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the day of the siege. 
by the time Lint arrives, the pub is in ashes and Ned Kelly's in handcuffs, being carted off for multiple murders, mostly of police officers. Lint never gets the shot of Kelly. Imagine how he's feeling missing the biggest photo op of his life. It's about as bad as olden day FOMO gets. I think that Lint possibly tried to take a photograph, uh, but because of all the movement that was happening on the station, with the police coming and going and, and him, the, the, the outlaw being ushered onto the train, there was no still spot. But he manages to snap six others. Remember, it's 1880, right? We're talking real old school photography. Think tripods, wet plates, head under the blanket, the whole shebang. But even though he misses the golden moment, the photos that he snapped are some of the only visual documents of the historic event. The photographs are sepia-toned and small, only 10 by 15 centimetres, not much bigger than an iPhone. I wanted to know what their deal is. So I spoke to Alyssa Bunbury, the Grimmauld Collection Curator at Melbourne University. The six images that we see are uh, people at um, Glen Rowan Station standing on the, on the station platform, uh, two views of the Glen Rowan Inn, which had been burnt down uh, in this siege, with people dying in the fires, and two, uh, two photographs of groups of people uh, who were either the people who'd been imprisoned uh, in the inn or the troopers and the trackers who were involved in the, the, the fight. Um, and they're posing very proudly. But then you've got one photo that's really different from the others. It's not staged. It's actually pretty grotesque. It shows the body of uh, Kelly gang member Joe Byrne, stiff with rigor mortis, but roped up as though he's standing outside the Benalla uh, jail. So he's propped up against a wall. You could almost think he's standing there, but you, once you look, you can see he's not. Uh, and there's a photographer, an official photographer, um, taking a photograph of him. So Lint is taking a photograph of the official photographer. It's pretty cold. I mean, here's a dead guy just hanging there. And next to him are people standing around having a chat. There's even kids there. It's insane. But at the same time, it feels more real and kind of gives you the sense that you're there. It's not as awkward and artificial. It's just callous. There was a lot of hype surrounding Kelly. He was legendary and polarising. His Guy Fawkes, Robin Hood, David Koresh. He was as much of a media sensation then as he is now. But weirdly, Lint never cashes in on these photos. Can you imagine if the guy who filmed the OJ Simpson car chase never sold the footage? Lint goes back to his studio, develops some prints from the negatives, and that's it. He carries on with his life. So why didn't he do more with them? Even though he took the photographs, he possibly wasn't particularly proud of his involvement. And we don't know that, that's just a speculation. 
but it may account for the reason that uh, the photographs disappeared within about a week. So there's no more mention of the photographs. There's no mention in any catalogue list that Lint put together for his purposes for distributing these images through his um, Collins Street studio. Okay, stick with me, because there's a lot of gaps in this story. We don't know how, we don't know when, and we don't know why. But somehow, Russell and Mab Grimwade get their hands on the photos. Now, if you're not across the Grimwades, jump onto the previous episode of Uncurated and get up to date. Basically, the Grimwade collection is an assortment of Australiana memorabilia. Russell wanted to preserve history as he saw it, and he used art as a visual historic document. Why he focused on this period is that he saw such change happening. He thought that the records needed to be kept. He wasn't curating an art collection for the beauty of the art. I don't think he had an aesthetic bone in his body, really. He was more interested in what the art showed. But what do these Kelly photos show? A somewhat artificial moment in history, really. And it makes me wonder, how much of our history is staged? And what else should we be questioning? To curator Alyssa Bunbury, these collections are personal, partial, and that's how we should look at them. One of the things I find really interesting about curating is people, I think people when they visit an exhibition don't realise how much an exhibition is a personal presentation. You know, uh, uh, it's in the same way that a novel is pulled together or a biography, uh, it's based on the person who brings that to light. If that's the case, it makes me feel uneasy. It kind of leaves me with a bad aftertaste of propaganda. And now these photos, along with the rest of the Grimwade's art collection, are housed at Melbourne Uni. They really wanted it to be uh, retained and to be used, uh, to be available for people to continue to learn Australia's history. And of course he was thinking Australia's white settler history at that time. Well, that's clearly problematic. So you've got the Grimwades, just one couple, almost drafting a version of history the way they want you to see it. And look at what the collection is made up of. I mean, take the limp photos, for example. You've got this one guy who turns up well after an event and stages some photos. We look at these as history, but he wasn't even there for the main show. It's such a limited view, and I can't help but think about all the voices that are missing. I definitely feel it does only tell a very small niche narrative of what was going on back in, you know colonial Australia, 1880s, Victoria. You know, all the men dressed in their clothes, fancy clothes, their top hats, um, the guns, the coats. Jess Alderton is a Darug woman from Western Sydney, studying art history at the University of Melbourne and working as an Indigenous student ambassador. If this is shown to anyone who is unaware of, you know, Australian culture and previous early Australian colonisation, they would probably think that, oh, this is just a, you know, the early history of Australia. Um, look at how far we've come. It's a great nation. 
they all look happy and settled, that kind of thing. It, it doesn't particularly reveal the impacts of all the, um, you know, the mobs around, around the country that were displaced due to settlers. She's not the only one who feels this way. Shanisa McConville is an Indigenous officer at the University of Melbourne, assistant curator to the museums and collections team, and an Eastern Aranta woman from Central Australia. Whose history is it? It's obviously not the history that we kind of want to be hearing. It's all of the, you know, from a colonial settler perspective and about suppressing anyone that kind of goes against that mentality and what they were trying to enforce across the country. So pictures like these, I just think that it's kind of trying to, you know, maintain that that's what was happening and that's all that we're kind of trying to show and preserve in these photographs. I can't help but wonder, apart from regrettable tattoos and tacky bumper stickers, what does the Kelly story really contribute to the Australian narrative? I've heard this story that many bloody times, way more than I care for. That was a version of history that I was fed. But really, what else could I have been hearing instead? What would have left me better informed, more in touch with Indigenous Australia? This is Jan Damara, a play based on the Bunaba warrior from the Kimberley region, in Australia's rugged northwest. He's known as the Black Ned Kelly. Oh, look, it's, it's a sort of an obvious comparison at one level. Um, but, you know, at the same time, they're very different stories. I mean, Jan Damara's an Indigenous man, you know, who was living in, in and fighting for his own country. I mean, no doubt Ned Kelly regarded his farm is his country, but in a different way. That's Steve Hawke, the playwright behind Jandamara. Jandamara was born just around the time that the white fellas first invaded uh, his people's country. Um, and as a youngster, he lived on both sides of the frontier. That was around the early 1880s, at the same time that things were falling apart for Kelly. Working at a sheep station in Leonard River, Jandamara learned to raise horses, shear sheep, speak English and use guns. He went back to the Bunaba people and their traditions. And shortly after, he was arrested for sheep theft. When he was released from custody, he went back to his country. But he basically became the offsider for a fellow called Richardson, uh, who uh, was working on Lillamalura Station. And he was a bit of a rogue. <laughs> so Jandamara was pretty much Richardson's right-hand man following him into the police force as his trucker, basically an Indigenous guide. We're a team, like bastard brothers, I told him. If we two are brothers, bastard brothers, that's me and you and Jangala too. <laughs> Jungle men, that's us. <laughs> Jandamara was tasked with finding his own people and saw many of them taken off to prison. The historical event that changed everything was... You know, he shot Richardson, his mates. He was sung back to his people and his country by, by his, his elders. He, he, he came back and rejoined his mob and launched a guerrilla war. Within a week of, uh, of Richardson being shot, there's this huge posse of special police sworn in and Queensland trackers, and it was a force of 30-odd 
went to Wingina Gorge where the Bonaba had set up camp and there was the largest pitched battle in, in Western Australian history and perhaps even in Australian history. This guerrilla war against European invaders went on for another three years, forcing Jandamar into hiding. But Jandamar's life came to an end when he was shot by an Aboriginal trucker working for the police, much like Jandamar himself had done earlier. It's a wildly dramatic story, full of passion and conflict, exactly the kind of legendary tale that would draw a big audience. But until quite recently, only a few decades ago, the story was somewhat hidden, only known by the Bunaba people. It's the work of companies like ours and the promotion of stories like the Jundamara story that put a powerful Indigenous perspective on Australian history. So to the extent that we've been able to contribute to that, I'm, I'm really proud of it. We're starting to listen to more voices when it comes to telling the story of Australia. But I still feel a lot of shame when I think about this country's past. And I can't help but wonder whether collections such as the Grimways should be on display at all. Maybe the best way forward is to put these items under a magnifying glass. I mean, if we don't challenge pervasive views, they'll haunt us forever. I put it to Jess Alderton, art history student and Indigenous ambassador, then Grimway curator Alyssa Bunbury. We can't always brush away the past and sweep it under the rug. It is necessary to understand and showcase what has happened previously and how it has come about. But I always believe there needs to be a clear intention as to why this is being displayed. There needs to be an understanding of the significance of why is it still kept as an object or an artefact and how it pertains to current history and um, why it's being displayed. I do think you should show both sides of the story. If you are displaying objects of colonial past, have voices from the other side, from First Nations. You could hide it away, but what's the point of that? I mean, the university has it. Um, it's much better to bring it out into the open, to keep showing it, but to, uh, to look at it in a different way. So yeah, I think there's huge scope for it. People see quite different um, stories to what the original artist intended. There's a, lot, there's a lot of gaps to fill and a lot of voices to be heard. Looking at these photos now, I don't see what's in them as much as I see what's not in them. I guess it really reiterates for me that historic artefacts are effectively legacies of power. I mean, through them, people who are long gone can still dictate what we talk about a century later. There's that cliched saying, history is written by the victors. But I think it's more accurate to say history is written by the loudest voices. Because they're not victors, they're just noisy. I know that other versions of history exist. They've just been drowned out. Just like Jan Damara, the Black Ned Kelly has been. These photos make me more sceptical about everything that I've been told. I'm no doubt going to hear Ned Kelly references for the rest of my life. But now, instead of getting an eye roll out of me, he'll be a springboard for this deeper conversation. When I hear his name, I'll think of Jan Damara. And I wonder what other stories there are out there.
That story was made by Rebecca Pridham and Maya Pilbro. Next time on Uncurated, the antidote that killed. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards and sound design is by Clancy Barlin and Thomas Phillips. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim. And thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries and everyone in the Museums and Collections Department. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Angus Thompson. See you next time. Thank you.